You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 227, Fort Lawrence. I know I mentioned last week I was going to cover the Penobscot expedition this week, However, I'm going to push that off till next week so I can cover this week the story of Fort Lawrence, which chronologically I probably should have covered a few episodes back. Fort Lawrence was a western outpost about 80 miles west of Pittsburgh in modern-day Ohio. It was built as part of an effort to capture British-held Detroit. This effort was led by General Lachlan McIntosh who I last really talked about in episode 138. The general from Georgia had faced continual frustrations in his efforts against British-controlled East Florida. Much of his frustration came from the leaders of Georgia and North and South Carolina, who refused to recognize continental authority over state militia. As a result, McIntosh could never mount a successful military mission in the South. The disputes between McIntosh and the civilian leaders had boiled over in May of 1777 when Georgia President Button Gwinnett arrested McIntosh's brother and tried to cut McIntosh out of the chain of command in the army entirely. McIntosh ended up in a duel with Gwinnett and killed President Gwinnett. Several months after that, General Washington transferred McIntosh up north where he would not be subject to revenge attacks by other men in the Gwinnett faction. McIntosh spent the winter at Valley Forge with the rest of the army. Washington then gave him the independent command at Fort Pitt in Pittsburgh. Initially, his task was to launch an offensive against British-held Detroit, but that goal rather quickly morphed into a much less ambitious goal of simply trying to keep the Indian tribes in the Ohio Valley from rising up against the Americans. Much of the reason for that change came from an incident that happened before his arrival. In the months before McIntosh's arrival in Pittsburgh, the situation with the native tribes had taken a turn for the worse. At that time, Colonel Edward Hand had the command of the small frontier force at Fort Pitt. In an attempt to quell a possible native attack being organized by British Governor Henry Hamilton in Detroit, Colonel Hand organized a group of several hundred militia. Their goal was to take out a cache of weapons provided to the Seneca and Cayuga warriors for a spring campaign. Since Colonel Hand did not have very many Continentals at Fort Pitt, he had to raise a force of local militia. He wrote about his goals in a letter to Virginia Colonel William Crawford, who he hoped could help raise the soldiers for this campaign. Quote, As I am credibly informed that the English have lodged a quantity of arms, ammunition, provision, and clothing at a small Indian town about 100 miles from Fort Pitt, 
to support the savages in their excursions against the inhabitants of this and the adjacent counties, I ardently wish to collect as many brave, active lads as are willing to turn out to destroy this magazine. Every man must be provided with a horse and every article necessary to equip them for the expedition, except ammunition, which, with some arms, I can furnish. Colonel Hand's recruitment efforts raised about 500 Pennsylvania and Virginia militia from the region. He set out after the enemy's cache of arms with these men. Rain and melting snow had flooded most of the area's rivers and had turned much of the land into a swampy mush. He marched his men about 40 or 50 miles up the Beaver River, but the conditions made marching so slow that Hand quickly realized that he would run out of supplies before the army reached its target. He ended up calling off the mission, turned his men around, and marched back to Pittsburgh. On the return march, several scouts reported finding a small gathering of maybe 50 or 60 Indians nearby. They reported that these were likely Cayuga warriors gathering for an attack on nearby settlements. So, the militia attacked this native camp. As it turned out, they were not warriors preparing for an attack. They were not even members of a hostile tribe. They were members of the Lenape, also known as the Delaware tribe. The leader of the group in this particular village was only known as Pipe. When the militia attacked, Pipe put up a defense while telling his family, consisting of his wife, mother, and children, to make a run for it. The militia killed Pipe, then they chased down his family and massacred them as well. They interrogated several prisoners and learned of another Indian gathering a few miles away. So the militia set out after that group only to find about ten women and children collecting salt. Most of them scattered, but the militia managed to run down some of the women and at least one child, and killed them as well. The militia then returned to Fort Pitt with the scalps of their victims, along with two live female prisoners. Female Indians at the time were known as squaws, so the mission became known as the Squaw Campaign. The campaign's commander, Colonel Hand, expressed what he called mortification at the killing of women and children. The leadership considered the entire campaign to be an embarrassing failure. For the local Delaware Indians, though, this was more than just an embarrassment. It was a massacre of innocent people who were just going about their lives. The most prominent Indian killed, Pipe, had been reputed to be friendly to the American cause and had been instrumental in keeping the Delaware neutral. Following his killing, and that of his family, the Delaware became decidedly more hostile, led by Pipe's brother, known as Captain Pipe, or Hopokan. General McIntosh arrived at Fort Pitt in late 1778, only a few months after the Squaw Campaign. It's unclear if McIntosh replaced Colonel Hand because of the massacre, but Hand was never sanctioned for his actions and went on to be promoted to general later in the war. It seems more that McIntosh's deployment was part of a larger effort to launch an offensive against British-held Detroit. McIntosh, though, had the difficult task of making peace with the Delaware Indians, who were related to the people that had been massacred just a few months earlier. Now, you may ask, why on earth would Indians whose relatives were just victims of a massacre 
be willing to work with those same people. Well, for one thing, the people had changed. Edward Hand, obviously, was no longer in command, and the local militia were no longer the primary military force in the area. General McIntosh had brought with him to Fort Pitt about a thousand Continental soldiers to support his offensive against Detroit. Now, there are no detailed records of the treaty negotiations, but McIntosh must have distanced himself from the massacre, condemning the acts as the unfortunate actions of militia running amok. The Delaware Indians had largely sided with the Americans up until this point, not because they had a particular love for American independence, but because it appeared that the Americans were more powerful in the region and had a better chance of winning. And that really hadn't changed. In fact, it probably had gotten more so with the appearance of a large number of Continental troops at Fort Pitt. For the Indians, joining the losing side in this war would only mean that the tribes would lose their land and get pushed further west. By supporting the winning side, they had a chance of keeping their land and establishing an understanding with the new power that would control the region. So, the decision to work with the Americans was probably more a matter of survival than one of ideology. As I said, up until this time, the Delaware had remained neutral. Traditionally, the Iroquois had negotiated treaties with the colonists on behalf of the Delaware, but the Iroquois Confederation was itself divided by this war and was no longer an effective body for diplomacy. The Delaware neutrality essentially meant that neither side would be permitted to enter their territory without being attacked. Since this area had not been particularly contentious as a piece of real estate, that policy had not really been challenged up until this point. But since General McIntosh was going to have to travel through Delaware land to get to Detroit, he needed to reach an arrangement with the local tribes. The native contingent that met with General McIntosh at Fort Pitt included three chiefs, White Eyes, John Kilbuck Jr., and Captain Pipe, the same man whose mother and brother had been killed and scalped in the Squaw Campaign. These chiefs wanted assurances that if they permitted the Continental Army to march through their lands on the way to Detroit, that the Army would protect the Delaware from any British reprisals, and that the Army would also provide some law enforcement to prevent settlers or militia from attacking the Indians again. The American negotiators agreed to these terms. They even discussed the idea of turning the Ohio Territory into a 14th state in the Union, with the Delaware being the leaders of that state. Of course, such a step would require the approval of the Continental Congress, but they were just putting it out there as a possibility. The result of the negotiations was the Treaty of Fort Pitt in September 1778, granting the Continental Army access to the Ohio Valley. Ironically, while the Delaware Indians made a deal with the same side that had just attacked and murdered their women and children, one of those attackers was moving in the other direction. A man by the name of Simon Gertie had served as a scout and a translator on the Squaw Campaign. Simon Gertie is a pretty interesting character who deserves, I guess, a little background. Gertie was born in 1741 on the Pennsylvania frontier in what is today central Pennsylvania. His father, who was also named Simon Gertie, was a poor Irishman looking to establish his own farm. 
Although the family managed to make a living through farming and trading with the local Indians, eastern land speculators claimed that Gertie was illegally squatting on land that they owned. The agent for the landowners, George Grogan, burned the family farm and had the sheriff throw the family into the street. The end of Gertie's father is a matter of contention. One story says that Gertie fought a duel in which he was killed. Another story says that an Indian killed Gertie in a tomahawk attack. In either case, the elder Gertie was killed, leaving young Simon without a home or a father at age nine. His mother married another man named John Turner, who had established his own farm, and who raised Gertie and his brothers as their new stepfather. In the story I mentioned before where Gertie was killed by an Indian, that story also says that Turner killed the Indian in revenge before marrying Gertie's widow. The Gerties and Turners lived together as a joint family for several years. Then, in 1754, when Gertie was 13 years old, George Krogan, the same man who had the Gerties thrown off their farm, joined up with a Virginia militia colonel by the name of George Washington in the Ohio Valley. They killed some French soldiers there and started a massive war. The French and their Indian allies made war all along the colonial frontier, attacking settlements, including those in Pennsylvania. Turner took his family to Fort Granville for protection. He joined the local militia and served as a sergeant. The family remained at Fort Granville for protection from the French and Indians. In 1756, the fort commander went out on a patrol. That patrol was ambushed and killed by a group of about 50 French soldiers and 100 Delaware Indians. That French and Indian force then demanded the surrender of Fort Granville. Sergeant Turner, then the most senior official at the fort, agreed to surrender and open the fort's doors to the attackers. The attackers then burned the fort and took the inhabitants as prisoners. Sergeant Turner was condemned to be tortured and burned at the stake. The Delaware burned and cut him for over three hours before someone put a tomahawk into his skull, thus finally ending his misery. All of this was done with his wife and children, including Simon Gertie, watching all of the events unfold. The 15-year-old Gertie was then separated from his mother and brothers and sent to live with the Mingo chief by the name of Goyasuta. The Mingo were part of the larger Seneca tribe then living in what is today western New York and Pennsylvania. Goyasuta was the head of a village that sat near the current town of Erie, Pennsylvania. There, Gertie became a part of the tribe, an adopted son, he learned the language and culture of the Mingo people who had adopted him. Gaiasuta had actually accompanied George Washington on one of his early forays into the Ohio Valley, but once the war broke out between the British and the French, Gaiasuta sided decidedly with the French. It's believed that Gaiasuta's warriors played a role in attacking General Braddock's forces on the Monongahela and then he also took part in the ambush of a British force led by General James Grant, who was part of the larger Forbes expedition that was trying to capture Fort Duquesne on the site of what became Pittsburgh. After the French gave up and left North America, Gaiasuta continued his fight against the British, taking an active role in Pontiac's uprising. 
It's unclear if Simon Gurdy was an active warrior fighting personally under Gaius Sutta on these campaigns. He really didn't discuss it later in his life. However, being a young man in his 20s and an adopted member of the tribe, he very likely did participate as a warrior with the Mingo tribe. Following the end of Pontiac's rebellion, the British demanded the return of all British colonists who were held by the Indians. Gertie had spent more than seven years with the Mingo, but was returned to the British as part of this agreement. Gertie's familiarity with both colonial and Seneca culture served him well. He found work as a translator at the negotiations for the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768. Following the French and Indian War, Gertie continued to live on the frontier in what was still official Indian territory and in defiance of the British Proclamation of 1763. He mostly made his life as a fur trader, but he was decidedly living with other colonists, not Indians. He was around men like George Rogers Clark, Daniel Boone, William Crawford, and Daniel Morgan. During Lord Dunmore's war, Gertie served as a scout for the Virginians and received a commission as a lieutenant in the Virginia militia. Later, Gertie served as a scout and a translator around Fort Pitt, and that is where he joined what became known as the Squaw Campaign. During that campaign, the massacre of women and children had a profound effect on Gertie. Shortly after that campaign ended, he decided to leave the Fort Pitt area, and he traveled to Detroit, where he offered his services to the British. Meanwhile, back at Fort Pitt, General McIntosh, having completed his treaty with the Delaware, began to establish the continental presence in the region. He first established Fort McIntosh about 20 miles down the Ohio River, northwest of Fort Pitt. Then, in late 1778, McIntosh built Fort Lawrence, named after then-President of Congress Henry Lawrence. The fort was about 80 miles west of Fort Pitt in present-day Ohio. By December, the log fort was completed enough for winter quarters. Because of the difficulties in getting supplies to the fort, McIntosh took the bulk of his army back to Fort Pitt and left them there for the winter. He left Continental Colonel John Gibson commanding a garrison at Fort Lawrence of less than 200 men. McIntosh realized over the winter that marching a large force through hundreds of miles of wilderness was going to be difficult, to say the least. He needed more than safe passage from the local Indians. He was going to need their active support on the campaign. McIntosh reached out to the chiefs among the Delaware to join him on the campaign against Detroit. And if they didn't, he threatened them with the possible loss of land. If the tribes complained that this was not part of the deal in their treaty, I think McIntosh's response was something like, I am altering the deal. Pray I don't alter it any further. With that, the local tribes decided that maybe the arrangement with the Americans wasn't going to work out like they hoped, and they became much more disposed to favoring the British. Their best bet may have been to wipe out the garrison at Fort Lawrence. Now, Fort Lawrence, as I said, was complete by this time. It had tall timber walls over 15 feet high and 6 inches thick. It would be impossible to take the fort without some artillery. 
The local Indians, however, began to attack any foraging parties that left the fort and any supply wagons attempting to reach it. In January of 1779, Simon Gertie returned to the area to help coordinate these attacks. After hitting several supply wagons, Gertie returned to Detroit for more reinforcements, and on February 22nd, he returned with enough men to begin a full siege of the fort. The siege began when the garrison, unaware of the enemy in the area, sent out a work detail of 19 men to collect firewood. The Loyalists and Indian force ambushed the work detail, then executed and scalped all of the men in view of the fort walls. Over the next month, the garrison began to freeze and starve as they could not collect wood or food. Back at Fort Pitt, McIntosh got word of the attack and assembled a force of 500 soldiers to relieve the fort and wipe out the attackers. The relief force arrived on March 22nd. On seeing their arrival, the fort garrison fired their guns in celebration. Unfortunately, the gunfire managed to spook the horses that were carrying the supplies, causing them to run off into the woods just as it was getting dark. As a result, the relief column lost most of its own food supplies. Without sufficient food, McIntosh thought that he could not continue the winter campaign against a foe who would simply hide in the woods and ambush at will. McIntosh opted to return to Fort Pitt, leaving a new garrison of just over a hundred men, along with sufficient supplies for the next few months so they wouldn't have to leave the fort. The Indians kept up their attacks on anyone trying to leave or approach the fort for the rest of the winter. At the same time, larger events were favoring the Americans. Over that winter, George Rogers Clark asserted American control of the Kentucky and Illinois territories and even captured British Governor Henry Hamilton, who had left his headquarters at Detroit. In New York, the Americans were going about the beginnings of the Sullivan Campaign, which I will discuss in a few weeks, which would cripple the pro-British Iroquois as a major threat. By the summer of 1779, McIntosh requested to be transferred back south to take part in the fight to recapture Georgia from British occupation. Colonel Daniel Broadhead took command of the forces at Fort Pitt. Broadhead decided that Fort Lawrence was only a liability. He again took a large column out to Fort Lawrence to relieve the garrison there and then return with all of his men and the garrison back to Fort Pitt. So, by August, the Continentals had finally completely abandoned Fort Lawrence and had returned all of their forces back to Fort Pitt. On their return journey, they suffered several Indian attacks, as the Indians had not given up reminding them that they were not welcome in the Ohio Territory. That final retreat marked the end of Fort Lawrence. Simon Gertie and several of his companions were labeled as traitors by the Americans and actually had rewards put on their heads for their capture. Gertie would continue to fight for the British for the remainder of the war. In October of 1779, he led a raid into what is today Kentucky. There, he ambushed a group of Continental soldiers under the command of Colonel David Rogers, killing or capturing almost the entire 70-man unit. While the Americans would make minor forays into what is today Ohio, Fort Lawrence turned out to be the only attempt to create a permanent presence in that region. 
the area would remain under the control of the British-allied Delaware Indians through the end of the war. Next week, we're going to return to the coast of Maine, where the Americans launched what became known as the Penobscot Expedition. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Mike Hager. I greatly appreciate everyone who has gone to patreon.com to pledge ongoing support for this podcast. It's helped me to cover my expenses and to keep the podcast free for everyone who can't afford to pitch in. As I mentioned at the outset of this episode, I probably should have covered Fort Lawrence and the events surrounding it a few months ago to fit in with the timeline of this podcast. I want to thank Zach Wingard, who pointed out that I had missed covering this important event, and even though I'd already posted episodes about later events, I figured better late than never and put together this episode. The really interesting character for me in this story is that of Simon Gertie. He became known as a hated enemy on the American frontier. His decision to betray the American cause and join the British was treated with the same contempt as Benedict Arnold's later betrayal. Like Arnold, Gertie would continue as an active combatant against the Americans for the remainder of the war. A few years after the events of this episode in 1782, he would be present at the torture and execution of his old friend, Continental Colonel William Crawford. This action would further focus the hatred of his former American comrades against him. Gertie would continue to live in the Ohio Territory until the Americans defeated the native tribes at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794. After that, Gertie moved to Quebec, where he remained an active supporter of the British military through the War of 1812. He settled onto a farm and started a family in Canada, where he lived until his death in 1818. As I said in the main show, Fort Lawrence itself is important primarily because it marked the only attempt at a permanent continental presence in what became the state of Ohio during the American Revolution. If you want to read more about Fort Lawrence, I did find one book that covers it in much more detail. It is called Fort Lawrence, 1778-1779, The Revolutionary War in Ohio, by Thomas Piper and James Gidney. 
This is a fairly short book, less than 100 pages. Even so, it covers the event pretty well. It was first published in 1976, when interest in the era was raised by the Bicentennial. One of the authors, Thomas Piper, was a public school teacher in Ohio. He did graduate work at Kent State, where I imagine he linked up with his co-author, Kent State professor James Gidney, who passed away more than 20 years ago. The book is out of print, but you can still find copies of it online. As always, I've included links on my website. You can also borrow a copy of this book on archive.org if you just want to take a look at it. My online recommendation is an older book that focuses on the life of Simon Gertie. It's called The History of the Gerties by Consul Wilshire Butterfield. It takes a close look at Simon Gertie and his brothers, all who have a pretty interesting story to tell. Now, this book was first published in 1890, but the copy that's available on archive.org is a 1955 reprint. The author, Butterfield, was a 19th century historian who wrote a number of books from the era and who tended to focus on the frontier. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org or use the direct link on my blog or website. My question this week asks, why was taxation without representation a major issue for the colonists? Well, Taxation without representation was a shorthand term for a much more complex idea. Way back during the English Civil War, more than a century before the Revolution, the British Parliament went to war against King Charles I and those loyal to him over the issue of taxation. The outcome of that dispute was that only Parliament and not the King could levy taxes. This was based on the idea that Parliament as a representative body of the people, had that authority. Taxation by a non-representative body, such as the king, was seen as a form of tyranny. If you are taxed by a body in which you have no representation, there's really no limit on how high the taxes could go, so you've essentially lost the right to property. Those being taxed could be reduced to a state of slavery, as all excess wealth was taken from them, and they were left with barely enough to survive. By contrast, if you are taxed by a body in which you are represented by someone you've elected, that meant that that elective power would serve as a check on what amount was reasonable for government expenses, because you could always throw out your representatives if they were taxing you too much. So, when Parliament began levying direct taxes on the colonies in the 1760s, colonial leaders thought that Parliament was violating this basic principle. Colonists were not represented in the Parliament. Although the taxes proposed were not excessive, colonists feared that they would be subject to even greater taxes in the future once Parliament established the precedent of taxation without representation. They only had to look at places like Ireland or Bengal to see how the British might strip them of virtually all their wealth and leave them impoverished if they allowed this precedent to take hold. Now, of course, officials in London saw this very differently. The vast majority of British subjects were not permitted to vote at this time. The idea that everyone needed a vote before they could be taxed was not something that had ever been true in Britain, or anywhere else for that matter. British officials argued that the colonies were virtually represented 
since members of Parliament would represent the interests of everyone, just like they represented the interests of Englishmen in England who could not vote themselves. The colonies did not accept this argument. In fact, after the tax process really became a problem for British officials, there were some back-channel discussions that floated the idea to colonial leaders that maybe they could get some nominal representation in Parliament. But colonial leaders made clear that that was not going to resolve the issue. Colonial leaders did not want representation in the British Parliament. Nominal representation in that body would not protect them from excessive taxation, since they would never hold a majority of the seats in Parliament. Colonies would always be taxed differently than the subjects in Britain, so a minority number of seats would accomplish nothing. Instead, colonial leaders were pushing for the idea that the power of taxation should belong exclusively to their own colonial legislatures, under the overall authority of the king, of course, but not by Parliament. Parliament taxed Britain, while colonial legislatures taxed their own colonies. Traditionally, Parliament had not levied taxes on the colonies. Yeah, there were a few import tariffs, but even those were not really enforced. So, when Parliament imposed the stamp tax in the 1760s, it really woke up the colonies as the opening salvo of an attempt to strip them of their wealth. Even though Parliament quickly repealed the stamp tax and tried to stick to the more traditional import tariffs afterwards, it also passed the Declaratory Act, confirming its position that it would pass any laws for the colonies, including taxes, if it wanted to do so. The decision not to impose taxes at this time was a matter of the kindness of Parliament and had nothing to do with the rights of the colonies. So, this kept the colonies on high alert for the next decade, fearing that some politicians would try to sneak in more taxes, even little taxes, that would set a precedent for much larger taxes down the road. Once the colonies acquiesced on even the smallest tax that was a direct tax from Parliament, they would have given up on the principle of taxation without representation, and they would have no legitimate principle on which to stand when Parliament raised taxes much higher at some later time. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please feel free to email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.